KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. In America, uh, black people are uh, treated very much as uh, the Vietnamese people or any other colonized people because we're used, we're brutalized, the police in our community occupy uh, our uh, area, our community as a foreign troop occupies territory. And the police are there not to, uh, in our community, not to uh, promote our welfare or uh, for our security and our safety, but they're there to contain us, uh, to uh, brutalize us and murder us. The Black Panthers. The Revolutionary Party, founded in 1966, are part of a fascinating chapter of history, and much of what they said and stood for seems as relevant today as in the 1960s. The uh, police in our community couldn't possibly be there uh, to uh, protect our property because we own no property. They uh, couldn't possibly be there to see that uh, we received the due process of law for the simple reason that uh, the police themselves deny us the due process of law. And so it's very apparent that the police are only in our community, uh, not for our security, but the security of the uh, business owners in the community, and also to see that uh, the status quo is kept intact. Welcome to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. In honor of Black History Month, I'm looking back on the Black Panthers with author David F. Walker, whose graphic novel, The Black Panther Party, just came out. In addition, the film Judas and the Black Messiah, about the life and murder of Panther Party member Fred Hampton, will be released next week. The Black Panthers exist on an almost mythic plane. Born out of the social unrest of the 1960s, the Panthers have become so iconic that sometimes facts are hard to separate from fiction. But that's something that Walker addresses in his graphic novel. Walker has joined me before to discuss black exploitation as well as films to provide a context for the current Black Lives Matter movement. I'll be dividing this podcast into two parts so we can discuss both his book and the new film Judas and the Black Messiah. I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back with David F. Walker, author of the new graphic novel, The Black Panther Party. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. David, your graphic novel, The Black Panther Party, has just come out. What was it that inspired you to write this and to choose to do this as a graphic novel? Well, it's a it's an interesting story. I um, about a, two years ago, I did a, a book on the life of Frederick Douglass, and and so that, in some ways, it started there. But the truth of the matter is, is that I had wanted to do something about the Black Panther Party for for going on thirty years now. And when I had gotten the, the Frederick Douglass deal with 10 Speed Press, I had I casually mentioned to my editor at the time that, you know, oh, I, you know, I've always wanted to do a graphic novel about the Black Panther Party, specifically about Fred Hampton and his murder. And we, we just kind of said that. And then after the Frederick Douglass book came out, a couple months after it came out, we were having, you know, sort of a what's next conversation 
and and he said, well, what do you think about doing something about the Black Panther Party? And and I said, the first thing I said was, well, you know, I really want to do something about Fred Hampton. And he said, uh, Patrick was, was my editor at the time, his name was Patrick. And, and he said, um, you know, I think that's a great story, but there's a bigger story there. And my concern would be, do people, you know, will people understand really the gravity of, of, of who Fred was and what happened to him if they don't understand the Black Panther Party? And that got me to thinking about, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And so I, I shifted gears and just knew like, okay, I'm going to do something about the Black Panther Party as a whole. You know, in hindsight, I'm glad I did for a whole host of reasons, but, but that's how it, it, it came together relatively quickly. And, and, you know, the funny thing is, is it was this desire to tell this story or part of this story for so long that, you know, led me to, in some ways, to doing Frederick Douglass, because I saw Frederick Douglass as an opportunity to test out what it would be like to do a nonfiction graphic novel and that sort of thing. But the, the truth is that that Frederick Douglass book put me through so many challenges that I knew how to face a lot of the challenges that the Black Panther Party threw my way. The book begins with this sense of once upon a time and myth versus reality. Was that one of the key points that you wanted to address about the Black Panthers? It was. It, it was. And, and the more I studied and the more I wrote the book, the more I, I felt that, that it was crucial to address that up front. Because even for myself, who had more than just a casual understanding of the party, I realized a lot of what I thought was what I my a lot of my ideas were informed by the myths. And most of the, you know, historical texts about the Panthers are, are either written from a very pro-Panther standpoint, they're memoirs by like Bobby Seale or Elaine Brown, or they're very anti-Panther. And those are informed by like the, you know, the counterintelligence program that the FBI waged against them. That's myth as well. And so I really wanted to try to get as close as I could to the heart of the heart and soul of, of that story and, and tell it as clear cut as I could, you know, I, I didn't want to be too, I, I hate to say pro-Panther. I didn't want it to read like a piece of pro-Panther propaganda. That's, you can't say that three times fast, but I also, I, but I also have so much respect for, for the things that he did and, and, and for many of them as human beings that I want, I didn't want it to be, um, yeah, I, I wanted to be careful that it wasn't just another sort of super critical, they screwed up, did everything wrong piece, which there's a lot of that too. So it was it was difficult to find that balance, but I knew going in that I had to address two or three things. And one was the fact that in sort of our collective consciousness and, and within this larger historical narrative, they exist more as myth than anything else. And then I also wanted to try to address and to contextualize what America was like leading up to the, their formation. So that, because the, the story of their formation is almost always presented as a, well, they are a bunch of angry young black men who started this militant organization, wanted to, you know, started carrying guns. And it's like, that's not their origins, right? Their origins go back to, you know, everything from slavery to civil war, to reconstruction, to the great migration, all these things. And if you don't understand that, and if you don't understand the 60s in particular, you know, the, the freedom marches and the killings of Goodman, Cheney and Swarner and, and, and all these sort of events, if you don't understand that, you're never going to be, under, be able to understand the Panthers. 
I really appreciated that context that you put it in because I didn't know what to expect from the, the graphic novel and getting this sense of history leading up to it was great. Yeah, yeah, no, I, you know, it's interesting because, and I talk about this a little bit, you know, I have people in my life who tell me, you know, they talk about what happened when they first found out about Emmett Till, the killing, the murder of Emmett Till. And, and you know, anybody who was alive when Kennedy was assassinated, people always talk about, oh, I remember where I was when Kennedy was assassinated. I think most of us are going to say that, what were you doing on January 6th, 2021, right? But I, I really felt like if you didn't get a sense of what it was like to open up a newspaper or listen to the radio and hear about the, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church and the, the little girls who were killed or the murder of, of, of Medgar Evers or, or any of that, if you didn't, if you don't understand that as a person, like I said, again, you're never going to be able to understand the Black Panther Party. And, you know, and it's funny because I'm not a, a, a historian in, in the fact that I don't have a master's degree or a PhD in history, but I have a friend who calls himself a, an armchair historian. And, and I would definitely consider myself an armchair historian. And part of being a historian is, is looking beyond the thing that you're studying. You have to look at the bigger picture. And what are a couple of the key points that you would like people to come away from this with in terms of how they view the Black Panther Party? Well, I, the most important thing is I would like people to, if they think they know anything about the Panthers, I'd like them to, whether it's positive or negative, if they think they know anything about the Panthers, I'd like them to, you know, try to put as much of that aside as possible and, and look at the book, because I, I like to think there's some stuff that you, they don't know and that they would learn. And if you know nothing, then I think you'd be well suited to read this book simply because there's aspects of this book that really explain where we are as a country today and how we got here. And, and I, I don't say that lightly, you know, it's, it's not like a sales pitch, like, Hey, this book is re relevant and you need to check it out. I mentioned in the afterward, I, I wrote the afterward right after the, the killing of George Floyd and, and in the, the protest and the, the violence from the police after in the aftermath was like, yeah, I can say, you know, emphatically without a moment's hesitation that I was, I was the person who was not surprised by any of it. And when, um, the, you know, the events on January 6th, I wasn't surprised by it. You know, I, I thought my biggest surprise was that it, it took that long to happen. And, you know, as I was getting phone calls from friends and family and text messages back and forth and, and I'm trying to sort of remain calm in my, vo my armchair historian voice and go, you know, well, if you if you ever read the Kerner Commission report, you would know that this, you know, but people don't know what the Kerner Commission report is. But if you read the book, you'll you'll find out. And and I think that that's that's crucial because right now we are living in a time when you know the old adage is that history repeats itself, and you know we're doomed to repeat the mistakes that we didn't learn from in the past. And and we're living it, man. Every single day we're living it. Well, for people who don't know what the Kerner report was, remind them kind of how prescient it was in terms of predicting a lot of the things we're dealing with right now. Sure. So um, in, the, in 1967, there was a, a, a 
series of uprisings in cities all across the US. The vast majority of them were racially motivated. Most of them started in the wake of police brutality. And it wasn't just the summer of 67. It had happened in all throughout the 60s, to be perfectly honest. But 67 was the worst year. It was called the long, hot summer of 67. And in the aftermath of that, President Johnson uh, wanted to know why it happened, what happened, and what could be done to to change it so that it doesn't happen again. And he uh, got, uh, it was a, a bunch of politicians together led by Otto Kerner out of Illinois. And uh, if I'm, I can't remember if Kerner was a Republican or a Democrat, doesn't really matter. They spent like seven or eight months putting together this, doing this comprehensive study on everything from poverty to the education system, to the medical healthcare system, to law enforcement, And they came up with this really startling document that said, you know, America was essentially two countries, uh, one black, one white, uh, separate and unequal. And then it spelled out all the reasons why it was separate and unequal. And it all came down to matters of of oppression and racism, disparity in wealth, things like that. All the things that we talk about, all the things that us lefties talk about, right? And, And then it spelled out everything that was going to happen if these issues weren't addressed. And, and, but it then also spelled out how to begin to address these things so it didn't happen. And, you know, President Johnson, to his credit, dismissed it all as being, you know, a plot by the commies and that somehow the communists had infiltrated the, 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 um, the commission and, and literally nothing, none of the recommendations in, in the Kerner report were adhered to or addressed, I should say. And, and the, the, the interesting thing is when you, like so many people haven't heard of it, right? Uh, came out in 1968. This was like a best-selling book. Like it was published and put out. You can, you can get it online for free right now. There's PDFs of it. The, the Kerner report was like, that was it. This is what people were talking about in 67, 68. And, and, and that wasn't a lifetime ago. That wasn't a hundred years ago. That was just a little over 50 years ago. It was 52 years ago. So I just find it interesting that um, how few people know about it and how few people understand the impact of, of, of what was going on in the 60s and that the answers were there, right? Just like the answers are here right now, where it's like we see Congress fighting over whether or not to impeach someone who's no longer president and what it means to unify the country. And it's like, Again, at the risk of getting too political, it's like, look, we know what needs to be done, right? It's, it's, um, and, and, and the problem is, is that every time we're faced as a nation, every single time we've been faced with the difficult things that need to be done, we don't do it. At least if it comes to race, we don't do it. And this goes all the way back to the founding of when, when, when we went from being a colony to a nation, when we declared our independence from, from Britain and the constitution was written there was an opportunity to address race and the issues of race. And this is in the 1700s and it wasn't done. And we're still, and, and, and there, there are, you know, people who signed the, the, the Declaration of Independence and, and who helped draft the constitution who said, you know, this is, this is it. Slavery and race are the things that will destroy this country. That was, you know, 240 something years ago. And, you know, not to, not to make light of it, but it was like, they were absolutely right. And, and they were more right than we were because, you know, a lot of these idiots were slave owners and they knew it, you know? So Thomas Jefferson had his share, so. 
Now, in terms of how you depict the Black Panther Party, one of the things I appreciated is you include some things like their 10-point program, which people have probably heard about, but probably fewer people have actually read through it. And this is included in its entirety. Yeah, no, I, I felt like the 10-point program is, it's one of those things you hear about. The Black Panther Party had a 10-point program, and and you maybe, it's just like we talk about the Constitution and, you know, the, 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 uh, the first, uh, you know, the, the Bill of Rights and all that sort of stuff. Most people don't understand the Constitution. They, they, they just say, oh, I've got the right to bear arms and, you know, the freedom of speech. And they don't even know what either of those mean. And, and so if we don't know, if most of us don't know what the Constitution says or is all about, we really don't know what the 10 point program is about. And it was really, a, it, was a, it was a manifesto and it was divided into two parts. There was what we, what we want and what we believe. And, you know, they, Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale put this together in 1966. And all, all of the, what they wanted and all of what they believed are still relevant today. You might not agree with them. I, 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 you know, if you if you don't agree with them, I'm not going to say that's fine. I'm, I will say there's something wrong with you because because the of the ten things, it's stuff like we want an end to police brutality, we want an end to systemic racism, we want an end to poverty, we want better educations, we want fair housing, we want all of these things that we're talking about, all of these things that are so and they've been more relevant, especially the last three four years. But now that we're in the pandemic. You know how many people are facing foreclosure or or eviction, and and what wasn't a threat for just in terms of housing, what wasn't a threat for, we'll say millions of Americans now is suddenly a threat, and it's and it's a real thing. Healthcare, the concerns over healthcare are a real thing because how many, you know, how many hospitals are at capacity, and. And all of these things, you know, when you have a, like, say, a healthcare system that is built primarily around economic gain, and I'm not trying to sound like a communist when I say this, but when you have a healthcare system that's built around economic gain, it is not built to actually take care of people. This is all the stuff the Panthers were talking about 50 years ago, 50 plus years ago. And, and when you read the 10 point program, and it's funny because, in, in some ways, because it's written in this, you know, very, uh, it's it's got a lot of rhetoric in it, and it's and it's written sort of in the tone of who they were or who they were trying to present themselves as being. But if you if you read it, everything there is valid, even even down to how they talk about, you know, they they want an immediate release of all of all black prisoners. You know, this is 1966. That sounds really radical. But when you start to look at like why so many black men and women were in prison in 66, 67, and you look at why so many of them are in prison now it's the same thing, right? It's it's the, the same reasons. And so even though some of the wording might be off or it might throw people off, if you, if you take a deep dive into it and just look at it with a bit of clarity, you'll see that it's like, it's all still relevant, which is which breaks my heart, to be honest with you. Well, what was interesting too in the 10 point program was when they talk about releasing prisoners, one of their other points is the constitution guarantees us a trial by our peers. And that we need to demand that if a black person is on trial, they have a black jury, which, you know, was going deeper than just making the statement. They obviously looked at the Constitution to try and find some things to support and to kind of give more momentum to what they were asking for. And and when you think about it, it's it's you you can apply it 
the reverse because the reverse is what made us realize, made them realize that this was needed. The, the, the killers of Emmett Till got away with it. You know, the, the, the killers of Goodman, Cheney and Swarner got away with it. All these people who, who lynched thousands of black people, you know, in the South throughout the, the 1800s and into the 1900s, most of them got away with it. And, and that, was, that was proof that a trial by your peers doesn't work. You know, it worked for the people who were guilty and got away with it, but it, it certainly doesn't serve black folks. You know, one of the biggest myths of this country is the notion, um, no one ever talks about this. When, when you say guilty until proven, or innocent until proven guilty is this one of the biggest lies that we perpetuate almost on a daily basis. And, and the reason why that's a lie is because in order for someone to be innocent until proven guilty, someone else has to be guilty until proven innocent. And, and when you look at, say, uh, I, I always go back to, because you saw this so, it was so clear when, when George Zimmerman murdered Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman wasn't on trial for killing Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin was on trial for, the, the trial was to determine whether or not he deserved to be killed, which meant it was to determine if he was guilty of something. And, and the fact that George Zimmerman did not go to prison for the rest of his life and that he's out free right now is proof positive that the system doesn't work and that and that Trayvon Martin was found guilty and complicit in his own killing and to me that's just that's unacceptable you know and, and it's and I don't feel like I'm some sort of radical when I say that it's like this is just pure you know it's, it's like I know that if I stick my hand in a flame I'm gonna get burned you know well one thing that your book also points out, which I wasn't quite as aware of, is how young these people were that were involved in this. And, you know, for somebody who's like 20 to go and read the Constitution to try and find things to support some of the the views that they wanted to project out to the public. I mean, it's it's really interesting how smart and passionate they were at that young age. Yeah, that... I, I, you know, I, I've talked about, you know, some of the more difficult aspects of writing this book, putting this project together. And there was, there was no moment that was more difficult than the moment that I realized that, that Bobby Hutton, who was killed by the police when he was 17 years old, he was the youngest member of the Panthers. He was the first member that Bobby, Bobby Seale and, and Huey Newton recruited. The moment that I realized that he, that I was old enough to be his dad right now. And, um, and I was working on the section of the book that was detailing his, his, his murder and really trying to get as many of the facts as possible. So I was reading all these different accounts and these reports. And at some point I realized, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here studying the death of a 17 year old kid who put his life on the line for something he believed in for his community. But did he really know what that meant? And I think that, that most of the Panthers probably didn't fully know what that meant because you know when you're in your late teens and early 20s do you know what that means you know there's a fire in your belly there's there's a drive in your spirit but it's there's there's um the maturity isn't quite there the the, the there, there's so many things that that we don't have and you know I, I started thinking about that a lot because i was i realized honestly at this point in my life i'm old enough to be the dad of every single founding member when they started the party. And that's including 
Bobby Seale. That's including Eldridge Cleaver. That's including all of them. None of them were over 30 at the time. I, I think Bunchy Carter, who came in a little bit later, like in 67 or 68, I think Bunchy Carter might have been the oldest person. And I don't even, if I can't remember, but I don't even think he was 30 at the time. So, I mean, that just, that says so much that once I had that realization about Bobby Hutton, actually the book became more and more difficult to write. It was the, because it was like that realization led to the realization that all of them, you know, that I'm, I'm a good 20 to 30 years older than all of them at that time. And, um, you know, and then it makes you think about well, what have I done with my life? What have I done with, you know, when you think about the fact that Martin Luther King was 39 when he died, you know, and it's like, oh God, what have I done with my life? You know, so, um, but yeah, that youth, I mean, that's what worked in their favor and it's also what worked against them. Well, it just also makes you feel how much potential was lost in so, so much. Yeah. And, and when you, and it's, and it's in a lot of ways, it's the potential of a, of an entire generation. And, and this is, this is something that I, I didn't address in the book, but I, I thought often thought about this, you know, because when they all, st- the, all those guys were from, from my dad's generation, they're all, you know, they were all essentially baby boomers. Uh, most of them were born either right be- during World War II or right after. And, you know, the vast majority of, of the, those guys are gone. The, almost all the founding members, except for Bobby Seale, are gone. And, and my dad's generation, which isn't that old, my dad would be 70 something, like his, my dad, all of his brothers, all of his cousins, all that whole generation in my family is gone. And, and I look at how many of my friends and peers, you know, guys in their 40s and 50s, whose dads and uncles and, and all of them aren't around and how long we haven't had them. And, and it's like, oh, we, you know, myself as, as Gen X, you know, like for, for black men in Gen X was, was a lot of us were not raised with, um, with our, with our dads or, or any immediate male role models that, that were of that age, that should have been of that age. And, and I think about, think about that a lot too. I've been, you know, like, how do I write about that in my next book? You know? One thing you do in the graphic novel as well is you choose particular moments in the Black Panther history to kind of detail. And one of them is this first encounter between the Black Panthers and the police when they decide to kind of put to a test this idea of we're going to carry guns and we're going to confront the officers. Uh, that was a great sequence in the book. It's it's noted on at the beginning of that sequence that it's inspired by true events. And that was because I, I must have read at least five or six accounts of that exact same event. And, and they were all close enough to the same that they, it was like, you know, but it was like some, it was like a game of telephone and it was like, okay, everybody's in agreement that this happened. Uh, there isn't quite a, agreement on how many people were there and what set it off, you know, or, and, and well, no, everyone was clear that it was set off because they were driving around in the, in the car. And, um, but uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to have, I, I knew that in terms of the, the style of this book, that it, it was going to be a lot of, um, uh, factoids, you know, it was, it was going to be an illustration with a block of text and another illustration with a block of text. And, and so I've read a couple reviews that have said, well, this isn't really that much of a graphic novel. And I didn't want to, I don't want to have that argument here and now, 
but I, I did want to have the opportunity to put aspects of this particular medium that I love into this project. And, and by that, I mean an opportunity to have scenes that played out almost sequentially, you know, in a series of panels, as opposed to just an illustration with some text. And I knew that, and I knew from the moment I started writing this thing that that was going to be one of those moments because it was just like every description I'd read of it was so dramatic and so like in my head. And I was like, okay, we can do this. I can do this. And I, I remember talking to Marcus about it and we kind of pinpointed like three or four times that we could really do this, make it make it really effective. Well, and since you brought up Marcus, uh, he is the illustrator for this. Talk a little bit about how you worked with him to create the look of the book as well. Well, he was, you know, Marcus is a, a, an amazing artist. I, I knew him only in passing, but I, I liked his style. It was very versatile and, and it was, but it was pretty cartoony. And I wanted a, a more cartoony style going into this because I felt like just the potentially heavy nature of the subject matter would, would I wanted it to be balanced by something that wasn't as heavy. And, and so there was some discussion back and forth and, and I showed them Marcus's work and which is very diverse. It's, it's, that's clear in the book and, and they agreed to it, agreed to hiring him. And, and so we talked about it and a lot of it was, you know, I was compiling um, reference material for, for months and months and months and he was compiling reference material and I was sharing sections of the book with him and we were talking about stuff and we were talking about things like, okay, how are you going to show the violence? How are we going to show you know, this thing or that thing. And, oh, there's, there's no pictures of this particular person. Well, this is, this is the physical description of what Alex Rackley looked like. Alex Rackley was someone that was murdered, was a member of the party that was murdered. So, you know, we, we came up with an idea of what Alex Rackley might've looked like. And, and there's just a lot of discussion like that back and forth. And, but the most crucial thing about our process together was that he, uh, I, I told him early on, I said, you know, this book is really, I'm having a lot of emotional problems writing this book. And I said, you know, when I hand you this script and you start drawing it, if you have those problems, let me know, you know, let's, let's be there for each other. And because I, I knew that like, like an example I can give you is um, there's, there's the, there's the bit about Emmett Till explaining the murder of Emmett Till. And, you know, I, I probably spent, a full two or three days really studying it, knowing it wasn't going to be a big part of the book, but making sure I, I had the facts right. And that was just like, you know, I emotionally that, that, you know, beat the hell out of me. But I knew that Marcus was going to have to live with the visual part of it. Marcus was going to have to find, you know, I found images, he found images, but he was going to have to look at those. He was going to have to render them. We had to have discussions of, are we going to show, you know, because it was famous, there was famous pictures of Emmett Till's corpse. And I was like, you know, we talked about it and we were like, no, we're not going to have that in this book because it's, it's, it's too disturbing for the age group that we're aiming for. And, and the image is easy enough to find, but, and, and more importantly, I did not want to know that that image was in my book. And I was, I was really adamant about that. And so we, but it's stuff like that. We talked about how do you, show this one thing. And, and, and so a lot of it was just us putting our heads together and, and coming up with creative solutions. But then there was a ton of stuff that he just would like, 
drop on me, you know, because <laughs> I would the, the script would wouldn't have much by way of actual descriptions that I would I would normally write because it's like okay I'm I'm writing here about you know um, George Jackson and the killing of George Jackson and uh, you know and I would say in the script I'd say I, I don't know what this these pages look like man let's just get on the phone and talk about it and so that's that's kind of what we did which is that's one of the things I love about comics is that if you have a good you know um, a good creative partner and a good editor who will you know allow you that leeway you can you can leave certain things out of your manuscript or or not leave them out so much as say let's figure this out later and and here's what the text is going to say we'll figure out the visuals later we know that we've, we're going to have two pages dedicated to Angela Davis and here's all that text that we have to fit into two pages we'll figure out what the Angela Davis pages look like later. And, and there, was, there was a fair amount of that too. I'm going to stop my conversation with David Walker right here, but I'll be back next week with the rest of my interview. We'll wrap up our discussion of his new book, The Black Panther Party, and then look to the new film, Judas and the Black Messiah, about Fred Hampton. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will learn. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. Thanks for listening to another episode of KPBS Cinema Junkie. I hope you'll join me next week for part two of my Black Panther Party podcast. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.